Hello, this is the voice of Toby Haydock. They'll never find the body. Uh, so my quest to interview, recap for later comes, my quest to interview somebody from every single Doctor Who story ever broadcast uh, continues today. Um, uh, these intros are largely superfluous, and to my horror, I noticed when sending the files to Big Finish, some of them were three minutes long. What could I possibly have said in three minutes? So look, me, Toby Haydock, the, um, off to interview man from Doctor Who. I need to give you a cryptic clue. Okay, I'm interviewing him now. Not at dawn, not at night time, but the bit in between. Is he a silverback? No. He sounds like one, but it's spelt different. And they mistook him for a woman on the closing credits of the BBC video release of this. So, off to do that. Uh, excuse the noise. I'm on a train, just for verisimilitude. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing him in a cafe. That's the next bit you'll hear. Go away. Pressed a different button, so hopefully you won't hear clatter, clatter. It doesn't matter if you do, because you're not paying anything. I'm with a gentleman who's kindly sought me out, actually on the internet, and has agreed uh, to, to talk to me. His history as Doctor Who is that he has an unusual moniker. That's not that he has a strange name, it's that the BBC credited him as a lady in the BBC video release of the story he was in. So, sir, who are you and why am I talking to you about Doctor Who? Well, I'm Valentine Palmer, and... Uh... I was an actor who became a producer and a writer, and um, some years ago, perhaps more years ago than I care to remember, but some of your listeners may actually be able to check it out, I did several episodes in Doctor Who, and the storyline was called Day of the Daleks, and the Doctor was John Pertwee, who I think was really one of the, the best of the Doctors, because I think um, Doctor Who's got to be really eccentric. And certain Doctor Whos that I've seen um, briefly play at being eccentric. And I think John Pertwee, as far as I know, he was bonkers. I mean, he was really, really eccentric. Very professional. Always hit the chalk mark on time. But, you know, uh, for me, he was the best of the Doctors. So there you are. And was, so he, are you saying he was quite similar to the... John Pertwee himself was quite similar to John Pertwee Doctor Who? I'm saying that John Pertwee was Doctor Who. In other words, if you'd been writing Doctor Who for the first time and thought, who can we base this on? You'd have thought, oh, John Pertwee. Long, flowing white locks, striding along in extraordinary clothes, talking in an extraordinary voice with an amazingly erudite brain. That was John Pertwee. It happens to also be Doctor Who. And so we, we know you were in Day of the Daleks, but we don't know uh, how you got there. So. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, it's very interesting, because it's confession time. My agent rang me and said, Valentine, um, have you ever seen Doctor Who? And I said, well, actually, no, I don't watch it. He said, well, you've got to get to like it, chump, because they've just asked if you'll go and do uh, two or three episodes in uh, Doctor Who with John Pertwee. And I said, well, I don't know. And then he told me the fee, and I said, fine, when do I start? And... uh, so there I was filming Doctor Who, and it was quite an experience because I'd never really followed it. And uh, I really enjoyed it, 
and then I had to go away and forget about it because straight after filming I had to go off get on a plane and go to Mallorca where I'd already been booked to take over a theatre an English speaking theatre there and be leading man and director in this theatre and so I never got to see my episodes and I didn't really think about it until when the BBC started well when they kick-started Doctor Who we've got David Tennant and there was a lot of coverage and PR for Doctor Who and they reissued a whole lot of uh, episodes including mine uh, in specially digitized form one of the fans because I have always got some fan club is, is thought about sending me fan mail for as long as I can remember you know a few a month so one of the fans sent me um, a DVD of the new fully digitized version of Day of the Daleks and I actually saw myself Actually, my wife watched it and said, oh, you weren't too bad, which I thought was damning the faint phrase. So that's my story about me and Doctor Who. And uh, it's not a bad part either, is it? It's, uh, and and you, you sort of, as you said, so you had a good fee as well. So you were, you were one of the leading guest stars of the show. Well, it's very interesting, actually. Oh, there's a lady just going by, wheeling a whole lot of exciting things. Um, we're very trolley-tastic. Yeah, trolley ta- I didn't want to. I didn't want to fight a trolley on an audio. Um, yeah, what was the question? Um, <laughs> you, it was. A, it was a good part. It was a good part. Yeah, um, and uh, I did enjoy it. But what is so extraordinary to me is that people still remember me, and they keep sending letters. Could I have a photograph of you? So of course I've made sure I had a drawer photograph. Oh, and about once a year, this is where the story gets interesting, about once a year I get invited to go to some jamboree, you know, at some big place and get paid to sign photographs for queues of fans, which is, you know, which is okay. Uh, It's not the day job, but it's okay. So I do this and it's rather fun because not only do I have these fans who want to be photographed with me and they were all born after after my episode probably and I signed my photographs and they, they pay me for it which is very sweet of them but also I get to meet chums who were in my episodes who I haven't seen for all those years so that's really rather fun now <clears throat> last um, October I think it was October 2011 actually so year ago last October I'm invited to go to one of these events and sign some photographs and I get talking to the guy who's putting the event on and out of the discussion comes a talk about the Titanic Uh, and we say oh yes um, April 15 2012 is the 100th anniversary and I said yeah isn't it interesting because I have a family connection and this guy's ears prick up and he says what do you mean And then I say, well, my great-uncle, Charles Herbert Lightoller, was the second officer on the Titanic. He was the only senior officer to survive the sinking, and he was the most crucial witness in both the United States and the UK Admiralty investigation into the disaster. And he was Kenneth Moore. And he was Kenneth Moore, or rather Kenneth Moore was him. (laughs) And so then this guy says, but we also publish autobiographies by TV personalities would you, could we commission you to write a book about the Titanic and your great uncle so that we can bring it out in time 
for the 100th anniversary on uh, 15th of April 2012. To which I say, well, you're not giving me much time. To which he said, um, we'll give you an advance. To which I said, <laughs> I'll make time. It's rather like my Doctor Who, isn't it? It makes me sound very venial, doesn't it? But, you know, you've got to pay the mortgage. When somebody says, do you want to do this, we'll pay you. Or, will you write a book, we'll pay you. You think, oh, all right. And I have to confess that I've got a number of e-books um, on, on my website. Um, and I've written lots of things. I'd never written a book. Or I'd never had a book published. So it was, you know, it was, it was fun. So I did enormous amount of research and hired someone, uh, my wife, to do a lot of research. She, poor girl, read 13 books and she put these little coloured strips stuck in the pages where I should read about certain things she discovered. And I discovered just about anything that everything that anyone could ever want to know about the Titanic. And out of it came my discovery of the conspiracy theories around it. And I was asked to, as a result of the book, to be interviewed on TV, radio and to go around the country signing books and giving talks about the Titanic and my family connection. And when I start to talk about the conspiracy surrounding it, you can hear jaws dropping to the floor because it's so extraordinary. And then several people said, Valentine, you should write a movie. And I had actually written some screenplays uh, before. So I wrote a screenplay based on my book about the great um, Titanic conspiracy and only yesterday I had a, a meeting with a hotshot producer who has got seriously interested and wants to take the idea, my idea for the film, off to Hollywood and see if he can raise uh, serious money and interest serious people in it. So that's the way life goes, isn't it? I'm assuming you can reassure us that your Titanic movie doesn't have the sentence, I'm king of the world in it. Uh, no, it, it, does, it even doesn't have the, this phrase, but I thought it was unsinkable. It doesn't even have that, you know. Um, it's really, the movie is just about, we don't see the sinking. It actually, I, I can give you the first shot of the movie. That's all I can give you. First shot of the movie is a blank, pitch black screen. It lightens a little to show us water. And the caption says, North Atlantic... Um, 12th uh, or 14th or whatever it is of April 1912 and a body floats into sight of a young woman she's obviously dead she's frozen stiff but she's wearing a life jacket and we zoom in on the life jacket which says SS Titanic so you know where you are now then, not a lot of actors go into writing or directing or producing, so were you one of those actors when you were working on stuff like Doctor Who, who, as well as turning in your performance, were you always fascinated by the technical side of it? Yes, but also I have a low boredom threshold. So I actually started life as an opera singer and a concert singer, became a singer on television. It was at a time when they did a lot of big musicals, so I did the Mikado and Merry Widow and all sorts of things on television. And then my agent said, well, you should be acting. So I, I started playing parts in plays in the days when we did these zonking great dramas, you know, single plays on television. And out of that came um, 
sort of visiting guest stars, not just Doctor Who, but Sweeney, Minder, professionals, all these. You know, I was always popping up in those couple of days here and there, which was great fun because I say I have this long, long this boredom threshold. Like, I mean, I just read recently that dear old Ken Roach has celebrated 50 years in Coronation Street. And you're thinking, how can anybody, no matter what the money is, how can you play some part on TV for 50 years? I'd be in a loony bin if I did that. So <clears throat> out of television came voiceovers. So for years, I was a voice artist. You know, you're so good for your hands. And uh, then out of that, somebody one day said to me, could you produce a radio ad? So I became a radio ad producer. And one day a client said, could you produce a TV commercial? I became a TV commercial producer. And out of that came corporate video and writing movies. And it, it just, if I get a chance to do something a bit new, um, I sort of take it. Yeah, because that's, well, that's what fascinates me, because as in your heyday as an actor yeah. in the 70s, you weren't a bit player. You came, an interesting, Paul Bernard, when he talked uh, to a book, I think it was the third Doctor Handbook, um, about his casting process for Day of the Daleks. I was really pleased because we got this guy, Valentine Palmer, to play the, the chief gorilla and it's only two episodes but he's a high status character and we got this we got this actor who was big and I think the quote is he was big news at the time but then he seemed to disappear off the radar well that's where I disappeared to so I it, disappeared it wasn't the acting lost you you just you, or, or, or the work wasn't coming you just you just filled, flew off and did something else I, I did and you, you know some people say that it's very important to focus on one thing so you get really famous for always playing the third villain or you get really famous for you know one pop song you write but on the other hand I always think that you know whenever the time comes hopefully not for a long time and I'm lying there and I'm about to move off to the great dressing room in the sky and all my children and grandchildren around me I want to be able to say I was never bored and you've got to admit that I always tried something new and to me that's more important as far as having a life. And I've touched upon um, Paul, who obviously gave you the part. It was his first Doctor Who, and he had a very distinctive visual style, and he's only associated with the John Pertwee era of Doctor Who, and he was also a designer. Um, but he, he sort of died before, he only did a couple of interviews, so I'm very interested to, to, to see your take, especially as somebody who's worked behind the camera as well, yourself, on, on Paul. Okay, I'll tell you, I think, first of all, he's a very interesting man, and he and I, even though there's a lot of pressure when you're filming something like Doctor Who, because you've only got a few days for each episode, and you're on this location, that location, back in the studio, so he's under a lot of pressure. Um, he was a very nice, very interesting person who wasn't at all like a sort of BBC producer, director. And, of course, Paul was um, the great-grandson, I think, of, of the great painter, Bonnard. So he was very interested in painting. I'm interested in painting because my wife's a painter. So we had a lot of long chats about painting, which was fascinating. And I thought Paul was really going to become amazingly successful. I thought he was the next Ridley Scott, you know? And then, like you're saying about my career, where did Valentine Palmer go to? I was thinking, where did Paul Bernard go to? Um, kind of disappeared. He did, did, did drop out of television. He, he kept his hand, but he also, he painted as Yes, well. exactly. And we used to discuss painting. And I wondered, um, because I hadn't sort of gone into it as much as you had, I wondered if Paul went off 
and just became a painter. Yeah, pretty much. So maybe you suffer from the same thing as me, low boredom threshold. Oh, well, I've, I've produced Doctor Who, now I think I'll start doing some landscapes. <laughs> and, you to- and you talk about the fact that, um, you know, unlike any job, Doctor Who keeps coming back to you. So, mm. so actually the cast that you worked with, you've, you've probably hooked up with, as you've mentioned before, several times since. So, so do you remember any of, the, of your fellow cast members? Oh, gosh, yes. And, you know, when you say, who do you remember meeting again... My mind goes a total blank. I mean, partly because I'm not a young man anymore. But uh, Katie, Katie. Comparable Katie Manning. Yes, and I've bumped into her several times. And when you haven't seen her for 30 years, she still grabs me like long-lost brother, which is so sweet. And one, this wonderful lady who was Anna one Barry. of the guru, Anna Barry. I keep bumping into Anna, and we keep saying, yes, we must meet up again and have dinner, and somehow we never do, but we meet again. So, yeah, I bump into these people, which is, which is great. Sadly, I don't bump into John Pertwee, because he is no more. But he'll always exist, as you say, digitally restored in, uh, in, in discs in homes for many centuries to come. Sure. I imagine that everyone who is a Doctor Who fan has got their favourite doctor. So there will be people who, you know, John Pertwee is their favourite, or, you know, David Tannen is their favourite, or whoever, you know. Um, and do, of course we haven't touched upon the fact that if you're going to do a Doctor Who, doing a Doctor Who with the Daleks is probably the one to do. I mean, what do you remember uh, about uh, working with the universe, the scourge well, of the universe? Yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, I, I really have to lift, lift the lid on this one. <clears throat> You know, kids reputedly, and many people I've met say, oh, when I was a little kid and I watched Doctor Who and the Daleks came on, I had to hide behind the sofa. And I'm saying, what? In each of those little lightweight tin pot pepper pots, there was a fairly small man sitting on a little seat and peddling the thing around with his feet on the floor. That's how frightening they were. You know, so when people say they were frightening, you know... And, of course, the voice, exterminate, exterminate, is put on later by a voice artist. And the little explosions, poof, they're all put on later. So it was quite difficult to react. And actually, it's a place where I have a gun battle with them. And I had to point my gun and sort of think, bang. (laughs) You know, and and then later on, they're going to put a big bang sound and put a little... Off of smoke or something. Off well, it wasn't even that big a bang sound. You just have to sort of sound it and it yeah. just goes. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever it was, it was that was not easy because there you are pretending to fire a gun that doesn't fire at a pepper pot. And it didn't even light up or anything, did it? Your gun. No, but in the digitized thing, they they put oh, sound yes, effects. And, oh, yes. yeah, and rays on yes. it. You know. Um, yes. And what is embarrassing is that. For some long time, after I'd been Doctor Who, I would be in a, a store and I'd get to the checkout and someone would recognise me and exterminate, exterminate. It was very tiresome. <laughs> very tiresome. Imagine if you'd been in loads. Oh, God. And I said, I'm not, I'm, I wasn't a Dalek, for goodness sake. Um, it kind of comes back and haunts you. It's quite extraordinary. Because I've been Minder, Sweeney, Professionals, so many famous series and loads of comedies like Mother Makes Three, Cuckoo's Wars. I can go on about these. Nobody is hooked into those. It's always, oh, you were in Doctor Who. Tell me about it. 
Well, I, I feel fate has made me, therefore, uh, because after I got your initial email, um, and this is an interesting, because you contacted me. I don't know how you found the thing, but I'm very grateful that you did. Um, and as we were batting emails back and forth, I've been, a friend of mine um, lent me his box set with the Sweeney. And uh, there I was, I just replied to an email from you, and there you were jogging away in the Sweeney. And uh, lots of scenes with John Thor. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, I've got a client who, because one of the things I do is I run a, I run a training um, setup called the Academy of Communication, and I teach business people communication skills. And I've got this client who turns up one day with something, and he says, I want to lend you these. He said, I collect old um, television shows and I've got the box set of it and I've got the box set of Sweeney and you're in number six or whatever it is have a look and I said I've never seen it it's another one I've never seen it so I put it on and here am I hair down to my shoulders and this huge moustache because in the 70s you know that it was it was hung over from the 60s and I had a moustache for many many years and, and the hair and everything and now there's no moustache, quite a lot less hair. And, and I watched it, and I'd forgotten some, some of the classic lines. I have a classic line in that Sweeney, which is just so wonderful. Um, Thor, having arrested me, comes to see me in jail. And I say to him, when I find out who shot me, Regan, I'm gonna crucify him on the front of a circle line train. And they don't write lines like that anymore, do they? <laughs> there was a, I think it wasn't in your episode, but in a later episode, yeah. Thor got the line saying, he's about as kosher as the butter on a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and I, later on, when I was making a film, uh, I made a, a feature down in Brighton, where I live, and one of the people who we used his house for location turned out to be a guy whose name I can't remember, but he, he had the original format, and he was a bit of a a lad, shall I say. He was an East End lad who knew all the bad boys and had come up with an idea for the school. Ah. And then he became a consultant on Minder. And, and that's how we had these wonderful, wonderful language and all these incredible kind of lines like that. Because he knew these were, these were really... Spread from the genuine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And um, all my scenes with John Thor, I had about three scenes with him in my episode in The Sweeney. <clears throat> and I was always sitting down, and he was always standing up. And if you had met the late, great John Thorpe, you would have known why, because he only came up to my chest. <laughs> he was actually quite sort of vertically challenged. But nevertheless, when we did a couple of scenes together, he was quite terrifying. He was, he was so in the part. He was mesmerising to work with. And I thought, nobody's going to watch me. They're going to be watching John Fuller. It's a fascinating thing watching it because uh, I'd forgotten how good it was. The dynamic between Thor and Waterman is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also very viscerally um, communicative of the time in that they are all drinking, they're all smoking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw one the other day where Thor and Waterman get up in the morning and open a bottle of vodka to start their observation. And part of me is thinking, I wouldn't be surprised if the actors were drinking that. No, and in that wonderful um, episode that I was in, there's a scene in it, I think it's in that one, where Waterman and Thor are in this terrible tatty club and they get up and do a song and dance, yeah. which they made up. They ad-libbed that whole thing. 
and then one of them falls over. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah, yeah, and they look steaming drunk, and it's it's brilliant. Well, they weren't because I, you know, I know I was there. You're not allowed to drink, obviously, on the set. But it was marvelous acting, and I remember the director. It was Ted Charles, and, and Ted says, "What are you going to do?" And Thor says, "Don't worry, we'll think of something, won't we?" And they just got up and had lived it. And there was a lot of ad living in that series because they were just, they've been together so long, those two. As in uh, Minder, you know, uh, Dennis Waterman and, um, and what's his name? George Cole. George Cole. They were, um, they were so attuned to each other that they could ad lib. And um, that was, I mean, Waterman was very lucky to have two such great partnerships in his career. I think. Yeah. Uh, both of them, of course, made by Houston Films, with more or less the same crew, and that's how I came to have a part in uh, Minder because years before I've been in Sweden. So there you go. And are there any? Uh, because obviously, you, you, when people find out you're in the Minder and Sweeney, people like those people, of course, because you're in Doctor Who, they stalk you. Uh, are there any jobs that you've done that you wish people asked you about? Because actually, you go, but well, actually, that was one of the best things I did, or I was really good in that. Yes. Um, even long before Doctor Who, I played Malcolm in a film of Macbeth with um, Michael Gwynn, who was a very famous actor yeah. at the time, playing Macbeth, and Dermot Welsh playing uh, Banquo. And it was a star-studded cast. And we made this film at Shepperton, and I had flu. And I was under these lights day after day, blazing film lights, like sort of a temperature of 100 and something. I thought I was going to die, but I didn't. And it's never surfaced. Don't know what happened to it. No one's ever asked me. You know, I think that's the only Shakespearean role that I've played on film. I've played it in the theatre, but I've never played Shakespeare any other time. And I thought, you know, whatever happened to that? But it's always Doctor Who. It's never, weren't you the guy who was... <laughs> never. It's never that. Um, and the other thing is, one of the first musicals I did on television, I played Nanki Poo in the Mikado. You know, a wandering minstrel high. And it was a big, big production with American actors and British actors and Hattie Jakes and all sorts of people in it. Nobody's ever asked me about that. I did The Merry Widow with a very big American star called Mary Costa and Jeremy Brett. Nobody's ever asked me. <laughs> and how is Brett then? Because, well, Jeremy is Jeremy. Um, he and I were at drama school together. Although he was ahead of me, but I knew him at drama school, and he was always going to be a huge star because he was literally so beautiful. Do you know the camera loves faces that are wonderfully proportioned. Tom Cruise has this incredibly pro well-proportioned face. Most human beings, the left-hand side of the face and the right are different. But somebody like Tom Cruise and Jeremy Brett, it's perfectly balanced, and the camera loves it. And he was such a nice person. And his great problem was that he never rated himself as an actor. He didn't really think he could cut it. And when I worked with him, he was telling me a story about going to Hollywood to play Freddie Ainsford Hill in My Fair Lady with Julie Andrews. And he said, oh, God, I'm going to, 
I'm going to spend all these months in California. You know, I'd be on the beach, and the director would not let him leave his hotel room because he said, there's no way I want you to go near the sun because you've got to be this pale London Englishman. And he had to just sit indoors, never got to the beach. He was given a singing teacher, and he rehearsed and rehearsed. I have often walked down this street. And he was so pleased when he actually got to record it and then um, mime it to playback, is what you do. You know, you mime it to playback. And he was thrilled. And it wasn't until he got to the premiere in New York with his agent and with his wife and everyone is sitting there and on comes the scene where Jeremy is going to sing on the street where you live, the big number. Hey, that's not my voice. They had dubbed him without telling him. So he was a fund of Hollywood stories and he was a very nice man. And when he died, uh, I thought, gosh, Jeremy, you've had this enormous success with Sherlock Holmes. And then you go and snuff it, you know, at a very young age. So, very sad, but a lovely, lovely man who never had the courage of his convictions, despite Stalin. It's a strange business and what it does to you, isn't it? Well, we can guarantee, though, that the voice that you have been hearing throughout this has belonged to Valentine Brahma. We haven't dubbed him in afterwards. And despite the fact... And we haven't dubbed in the voice of the baby that's been screaming, the trolleys that have been going past. When we arrived here, um, it was quite quiet. But uh, as soon as we started recording, uh, it seems that uh, all the devils in hell have come out for their lunch. This so, is reality radio, folks. <laughs> <folks. laughs> this, 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 I suspect, wouldn't pass muster in one of your productions, Valentine. Oh. But we're, uh, we're, um, we're, we're guerrilla style, which is appropriate, seeing as the part you played in Doctor Who. Was so, it a guerrilla, yes. So own, I've got my two stop questions that I ask at the end. One is uh, if you would like to nominate a charity, because uh, all of this is gratis. Um, and so if the listeners care to donate... And the second would be um, your message to the Doctor Who fans on the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Okay, I support a number of charities, but my sort of kind of favourite is Médecins Sans Frontières, um, Medicine with No Frontier, because these people, these nurses and doctors, they go into the front line in real conflict zones and they do get killed doing their wonderful work tending to both wounded soldiers from both sides of a conflict and to civilians wounded. Médecins Sans Frontières, they need your support. They just are amazingly brave, skilled people. Well, I'll, um, in, my, in my outro to this that I will record later, I will source a place and give you an address where you can donate. That's a, that's a great cause, so I hope you can. Even if everyone gives a quid, raise a little bit. Absolutely. Um, they need to know that you care and that you know what they're doing. And really, if I could say, go into uh, Google and put in Medicine, which is like Medicine, Sans, S-A-N-S, without, Frontier, same as Frontier, and just find out about these amazing people. And, uh, and perhaps now a less serious message for the fans of Doctor Who on its 50th anniversary year. Yes, keep watching the show because the BBC needs the money. They sell it to 52 different countries, I think, and it's there, apart from maybe David Attenborough's uh, nature um, and wildlife programmes, I think it's their biggest money spinner and has been their biggest money spinner for, as you know, coming up to 50 years. So the BBC needs your money, folks. Keep watching.
And I did actually prompt Valentine that I was going to ask that question because it's such a terrible question that I've sort of made a rough from my own back and now have to ask it of everybody. And uh, what you said off mic was keep taking the pills. <laughs> so um, I'm going to keep doing that as well. Valentine Palmer, thank you very much. It's been fun. Thank you. My sincere thanks to Valentine. Uh, what a charming fellow. And... Uh, talks a lot longer. Uh, my thanks also to the kind people who frequented the restaurant in which we met um, for disabusing me of the notion that they clearly thought I had, that uh, they were all incapable of speech and uh, very bad at dropping things and scraping them along the floor. Uh, coming up in future Toby Hiddick's Rams, um, I'm currently editing what's going to be an hour-long at least special, talking to at least four people from one story. I know I was supposed to be getting one anecdote from each story, but um, I'm an idiot and can't say no. So uh, one story is getting special treatment, and it's good because the DVD of it did not have a making of. Um, I can't guarantee you when that one's going to be out because there are even more cast members from that story um, alive and well and potential interviewees. So um, I'm working on that. Uh, and I've got a film cameraman... And, of course, the inevitable um, long list of character actors that I've always wanted to meet. And I'm now doing so uh, under the pretense of providing you all with a service and something interesting. It's really me fulfilling my childhood uh, dreams, uh, but doing it in public, like the awful narcissist I am. Oh, well, could be worse. Could be a Star Trek fan. It's a, it's a casino. Oh, um, that's where people come to bet money on games, Jamie. Like card games and dice games. And... Ah, right. You mean a gambling den. I have heard of places like that in that London of yours. There's nothing like this in my London. Blue lights were flashing everywhere. All I could think of was that I couldn't see any of my friends. I was sure that one of them must have got into trouble. Doctor, they're looking for time travellers. The casinos had problems with people going back in time and betting on the outcomes of games they've seen before. If they found out about us... So we have found our cheat. No, you've got this all wrong. Please be silent, mammal. Hey, I know that voice, but it can't be... What are you doing here? This podcast needs you, so if you have any feedback, opinions, tip-offs, suggestions, uh, relatives who were once in Doctor Who, uh, abuse, uh, proposals of marriage, uh, uh, useful recipes, please send them to podcast at bigfinish.com. Podcast at bigfinish.com. And that would be much appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. That's at Toby Haydoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E.
H-A-D-O-K-E and my website which has a blog and all sorts of other scrumptious delights is at www.tobyhaydoke.com <laughs>